is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Nadine Lalich just published a book about her experiences, and it is titled Evolution, and it is subtitled Coming to Terms with the E.T. Presence. I did a really powerful interview with Nadine back on my previous podcast series back in 2012, and I re-listened to that episode to prep for this audio conversation, which you are just about to hear, and I am including a link to that older conversation in the show notes. Nadine has a strong and grounded voice, and I say as much to her during this show. She is a very credible and well-spoken person, and I respect the way that she can be forthright and at the same time very cautious as to how she frames her own experiences. This conversation was recorded Monday, March 2nd, 2020. Please enjoy. Nadine, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Glad to be here, Mike. Very happy to be here. Uh, We did an audio interview back in 2012, which is good grief. That is eight years ago now. I just re-listened to that interview the other day while cross-country skiing. I had uh, had my... my, uh, I was going to call it a Walkman, but I had my iPhone, and I uh, I was really thunderstruck on what a good interview that is. It made it a little bit intimidating to step into this one because uh, that one was so strong, and I will point our listeners to that. So I just want to, first of all, thank you for that interview in, in uh, 2012. It's my pleasure. Now, you have been writing about your personal experiences, and you just came out with the book within the last just a little over a month ago, almost a month to the day from when we're talking. What was the reason for writing that that follow-up book? Well, as you know, um, I my first book was co-authored with Barbara Lamb. And uh, I believe it was 2007, 2008 that book came out. And the theme of that book was 25 cases were in there. And uh, one of them was mine, and a good portion of mine, initial story, was told. And the others were um, kind of short summaries of Barbara's case files. So what had happened is that we went through a hundred of her files. We picked those that we were going to include in the book. And um, so only a portion of my story was told. And as the years passed since then, and the saga, if you will, continued, Um, I felt it was very important to finally put all of the information out that I have acquired over the years through my personal experiences. So this book is an opportunity to do that. It pretty much um, catalogs the vast majority of uh, what I have experienced in the ET and my lab arena. Very good. And and there's one story that we did not talk about, in, and I don't think I even knew about it in uh, 2012 when we talked. It was an event that happened in 1968 in Michigan. And uh, just to, so all folks know, I am from Michigan, and I actually looked this up, the Metro Park, where it took place, and it was not too far from where I grew up. Right. So I would love to hear that story. That was I want to be very cautious what I say, but that one, <laughs> that one was powerful to hear. Right. Um at the time, I was 16 years old, and uh, my boyfriend was 17, and we were prone to go out and hike a lot. We had picnics. We did a lot of hiking, a lot of outdoor activity, and one of the places that we tended to hang out was uh, Metro Park, which was probably about 45 minutes from where I lived in Down River, Michigan. Anyway, on this particular evening, we it was winding up the end of the day, and we were about to drive home. We were parked on the side of the road. It was already dark by then, and we were getting ready to leave and drive back home. And we saw lights in the sky. And looking up through the windshield, we saw a very large craft. Um, I can't say that we immediately identified it as a craft because neither one of us were particularly involved 
in that subject, but we looked up and there was a very, very large round craft overhead of our vehicle. It, initially, it came from behind, and if I was to estimate, it's difficult to estimate the height, but let's say it was um, three or 400 feet above the car, but it was very large. It kind of blocked out most of the sky. And it was moving from behind us across the top of our car and then forward. And we were very excited when we saw this. We saw the lights. There were lights that were circling around the bottom of the craft. And at first we were talking, you know, was that a, that can't be a plane. It's standing still. It's moving so slow. So we decided to follow it because it was beginning to go forward. It was no longer overhead. And we that was our last decision. We were going to go and we're going to follow this thing. Now, the next thing I know is it's several hours later, and we are in the car, and I come to, and I look to my left, and he is um, appears to be sleeping or unconscious, and um, I look at my watch, and I see it several hours later, and all that I can remember is we're starting to watch this craft go overhead. Well, this is one of those experiences where later on I did have a hypnotic regression uh, with Barbara Lamb. In the book Evolution, the only experiences that I uh, included in the book had an initial conscious recollection, and there was, and then there were some of them that had the hypnotic regression with it. So they were all at least had an initial conscious recollection of an event that was taking place. In this event, I did later on go and have a hypnotic regression because we could not remember. We left, we left that moment and we went home and we were very excited because we remembered the crafts. Clearly we were chatting about it and very excited. Went home, talked to our parents, went to my house first, talked to my parents. They didn't believe us at all that we'd seen this thing. And then again, we moved forward years later with Barbara Lamb, and I did a hypnotic regression on this. And in the regression, um, as we moved through, that we did indeed stop, and the craft stopped and was hovering in front of the vehicle, fairly close to the ground. And it had a beam coming from underneath the craft onto the ground and the asphalt, because they were asphalt roads that were moving through Metro Park. And I recall standing on the side, and I am looking at and these, what's, what I see is what we consider now the typical gray. And I'm standing on the side of the car, and at first I think that I'm alone. And I'm outside, leaning against the car, standing up, and I see him on the other side with several grays being removed from the vehicle. And I feel this overwhelming sense of um, concern for him. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they're interested in him this time. And as it progresses, I realize that someone is standing next to me and that I can't move. I'm very paralyzed. And it comes to the reality that, wait a minute, we're both being taken. Something's happened. Something is happening to both of us. I see them, several of them walk to underneath the craft where it's hovering, and I see him in that light, and his body becomes very contorted, it awkwardly shaped. And then the next recollection that I have, I realize, wait a minute, I am involved, and we're on a craft. We're in a room, and I still have that same, I, I really never looked at that entity. I don't know if it was a gray, but whoever was standing next to me, keeping me quiet and stable, I'm looking across the room, and I can see him. Um, I think I referred to him, his, his uh, I think I referred to him in the book, excuse me, but I think I used the name Mike in the book, but that was not his name. Um, and I see him laying on the table, and I see several of the grays around him. And I'm pretty horrified when I recognize what they're doing to him. And over the years, you know, um, I have slowly acclimated myself to other people's experiences. Initially, I stayed away from taking any of that information until I had all of mine 
uh, put together first. I didn't want to tarnish the information. But over time, I did start to, you know, absorb other people's stories. So in this instance, what I'm seeing is them essentially using an instrument to remove semen from him. And he's flailing on this table. And I, my heart is going out to him. I'm so upset when this is happening. And he's kicking and screaming and trying to hold him down. And they are removing semen from him, in essence, and putting it into these, um, these clear little containers. And I've seen this in my own experiences. And they're a, they're a clear, that looks like acrylic or plastic container, perhaps glass. And they have a rounded top, which magnifies the contents. And they're using one of those containers for the placing his semen in a fluid in one of these containers. Uh, it was a very emotional experience for me. Um, I did not continue through the regression with my own my own experience during that event. They, pretty much as we worked on the hypnotic regression, I was pretty traumatized by watching him and watching what was happening to him. Um, that event revolved really the focus on him. And then, of course, later on, we were back in the car. And um, it's interesting because what was really upsetting about this particularly is uh, this this fellow, obviously, he was only 17 at the time. The effects that this had on him was so traumatic that it it just about broke him. He later on had to go into uh, some very serious psychiatric hospitals. He was claiming that he could hear uh, things and voices through the walls that people were visiting him. And he had all kinds of, they had names for what he was suffering. But I always wonder when I look back now with the full picture as to whether or not he was simply traumatized by the ET contact, trying to convey it. But psychologically and emotionally, he simply wasn't able to process it. And he never was the same after that. Oh, this is heartbreaking. This is heartbreaking. Within this field, there's a faction that is can be very sugary and very love and light. And there's almost a, a willful ignorance to ignore exactly what you have just shared right here, these types of stories. Right. And um, at the same time, there is very powerful, um, very powerful growth can take place in the people who have had these experiences. So this is not easy stuff. No, no, it's not. It's not. You know, you hear, uh, of course, and I'm sure you have too, we all have, any of us who are experiencers, uh, there's a lot of mockery, a lot of disinformation, um, a lot of denial. And, uh, you know, it's like, and, and a lot of what I believe may be the Stockholm Syndrome in making friends, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Honestly, uh, other than one particular experience when I was younger, um, they were all fairly disturbing and traumatic for me. It's certainly nothing that I would have welcomed. But I think ultimately what is good is I was able to take the information, expand my consciousness, my view of the world, spirit, and by doing that, uh, I was able to change my perspective. I mean, myself, my, my whole being changed. As has mine. As has mine in many, many ways. I feel, I talked to one fellow, um, his name is Bill Konkoleski, sometimes William Konkoleski, he goes by, and he lives in Michigan. He's the Michigan State Director for MUFON. Um, I asked him the question, what would you be like if you hadn't had these experiences? How would your life be different? And he paused and he said, if I, if I didn't have these experiences, I would be unrecognizable to myself. Wow. Yeah. And, and, um, and he's a very optimistic, thoughtful, uh, conscientious guy. So and he's had some scary stuff too. So this is, right. this is, these, the waters we are, we are swimming in are fraught with dangers and challenges. They are, they are. But, you know, honestly, um, I sort of, I don't sit in a dream world wishing for something that isn't happening. You have to address what's really in front of you, what's taking place, and work with what is. So I work with what is. That's my, that's my method. It's, I guess I, I am an eternally optimistic person, and I find that that serves me because no matter what comes my way, I'm going to take that information, that experience, 
and find some way, some way, and it, sometimes it takes a great deal of work, but some way to utilize it in a positive way. And my, I would say my compassion, my awareness of the universe, um, my commitment to the universe, to all beings, to life. I mean, so much has evolved as a result of being willing to process this. But processing it in a conscious way, not trying to label it, not trying to make nice, nice out of it. You know, and I, you were mentioning the fact that so many people want to make it sugar-coated. And um, that's difficult for me, you know. Sometimes it is the worst circumstances that we're presented with that cause us to stretch and become the best that we can be. And I think that in this case, that's certainly it. If you label too quickly and try to define what's happening here, you get stuck. And I don't want to get into anything where anything is all, oh, no, it's all nice, nice, or it's all bad. I don't want to do that. I try really hard not to label it and just to see, work with it. Work with the material, see where it takes me. Can I expand my consciousness? Can I become something better, something more? Can I contribute something better to the world through this experience? And I would say overall it's working because, first of all, I don't have any fear of this anymore. One of the big things with the book this time, and you asked me why did I write the second book? Well, there have been my lab or military abductions, I believe. It appears that way in my own life after I started talking about this quite actively on radio and some of the shows that I did. And I didn't have the opportunity to discuss that. What I wanted to do with this book is create a full picture. You know, and interestingly enough, even even the military I'm not afraid of anymore. Uh, I would say I found that to be much more, uh, a much bigger concern initially. You know, and I had, I'd had lunch with, um, Melinda Leslie, and we have talked about that but it, because, of course, that's her big research is uh, My Lab Encounters. And because I told her I was going to come up with this book and I was going to tell some very um, detailed, present some very detailed information on military. And uh, she was lovely and encouraging. And uh, I decided to go ahead with this. So that's why the second book also was very important to get a whole picture of one person's experience with the phenomenon. And when we come back, we can talk about that aspect. And that is a very challenging aspect for me. Like I yes. struggle with the implications of those those kinds of military encounters. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will take a short break and we will be back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Nadine Lalich, and we are talking about her experiences and her new book. Just before the break, we brought up the very troubling issues of the military influence in these, in these events, the MyLab events. And you share a few very unsettling stories in the book. Would you be willing to talk about one of them? Certainly, certainly. I can share um, an underground experience that I believe was involving an underground military base. First of all, I think one of the things that's very important, and, and I was glad I had an opportunity to discuss both the ET and the military uh, phenomenon side by side, because there's many differences in how these things are conducted, how they how they move through. Um, events. First of all, the interesting thing with the military is that they enter through doors. They enter through doors. The abduction takes place just in the third dimension in a normal, typical manner of going through a door, exiting. Uh, in this particular experience, that's how this uh, unfolded, uh, the one I'm going to share, how it unfolded. and. Um, I recall in this experience waking up to someone being in my room. Um, I recall being wrapped in a blanket. I recall going, uh, walking out of my uh, condo at the time I was living in uh, Laguna Hills, California, and um, being removed from the apartment uh, 
awakening first, finding that I'm also paralyzed. I can't move. But then being wrapped up and taken out of the apartment with several uh, people that appeared to be dressed in military, very specific uniforms, uh, being removed and walked out of the house at night and um, seeing black helicopters hovering over the, um, we didn't have garages, individual garages, we had parking structures. So over the parking lot is where uh, with a number of the events, there were black helicopters. Now, it's, you go in and out quite similarly like you do when there's an ET abduction, but it feels very different. It's, your, your tactile senses are present. You can feel cold. You can feel different sensations when um, the MyLab is taking place as opposed to ET. In this instance, there's I come in and out. I'm taken and I come in and out. And I recall going into a very remote area, very open land, and seeing a big metal door. I see that. I think what might be happening here is that there's some kind of injection given initially to calm you down and make you easier to manage, but it begins to wear off over time. I see the door, a large metal door, and we go into it. And I'm surrounded by a number of men dressed in military uniforms. My next recollection is of being in a solid glass cylindrical elevator, perhaps four or five feet across at the base. The whole thing is glass, so you can see out. And it's almost like a, a giant tube that starts moving downward. As I look around, I can see very clearly that this is a gigantic cavern that has been carved out of a mountain. You can see it. It's, it's like being in a very massive cave. As we begin to go down, um, I can look around the sides, and what I see looks like metal scaffolding that's been mounted and attached to the sides of the cavern. Going down to the first floor, the first dramatic thing that I see is I come down, and it's quite a distance. Let's say as I'm coming down and looking down on a scene where a human might look about an inch and a half tall. That's how high up we are as we come down. And the first thing that I see is a massive craft that almost looks like a combination of, um, I don't know, it looks like a combination of a human and an alien type of craft. Very unusual, the characteristics. And it is, as you go down, the, uh, the flooring is off to the right, and we go down and pass this scene, and there's got to be at least 100 workers around this. There's scaffolds around this craft. There's workers. They all wear the same kind. They're wearing like a, um, like a mechanic's jumpsuit. Although it's quite a distance away still, I get a sensation that some of them are not all human. They're all humanoid, and they are certainly wearing these coveralls as they're working on it. So this elevator moves fairly fast, so I don't get a huge picture of it. But as we go down, I see them working on it. I see the craft. In the book, um, I've done 50 different illustrations and photos are included in the book because I think the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, is so true. So I've done my best to convey what I've seen. And so this scene is included in the book. And as we continue down farther, we continue. Um, we passed several other floors. Now the thing, the first thing that really, I, I look at the people that are escorting me and slowly as we move down, there's only one more escort with me now. But I've seen a number of these, what I would call soldiers, and they're all wearing the same uniform. It's a dark blue uniform, they have a certain kind of a cap on, and they have an emblem on their shoulder, on the shirt's shoulder. And one of the things that utterly amazes me is that they're all identical. They're the absolute identical match. Well, let me so let me interrupt a little bit. This is something that struck me very strongly in both of the events, and uh, so the implication would be that they are somehow the clone of the exact same being. I'm being very literal in in my interpretation there. That would be my that would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. You never quite said it out, outright in the book, but that was my guess too. Well, we're talking about. I mean, I saw at least five. They were identical, facial, body, shape, 
everything identical. So yes, my guess would be we're talking about a human clone. So as we continue down, the walkways were interesting and you could walk across these big areas. So imagine you a giant cave and you've got layers, which are floors carved out. Along the side, this elevator runs up and down, all the way up and down. And I get a view as we're coming down. But we move fairly quickly. And we hit down to two or three floors. We step off this elevator. And we walk across, um, we walk across to these tunnels. And some of them, you could go into different areas of the cavern that were blocked off. So, for example, imagine a giant round, uh, almost like a steel tube. At the floor, he's got grating that runs across and you walk through the tube. All the doors from one area to the next are double doors. They're a medium blue color, and they have windows in them, so you could see through. And you would push to like swinging doors. So we had to go down several layers. We walked through several of those tunnels like that, the walkways, and go down another elevator that is similar to the first glass elevator until we reach the very bottom, what appeared to be the very bottom. Now, what was so strange here is once we get down to the bottom, um, and, and I did not try to speak to this man. He didn't speak to me, the one that was with me. We got to the bottom and got off of that elevator. And this is what I see. I see a dark cavern lit from the sides. Uh, the ground is regular dirt, stone, rock, ground. Here and there, you see little bits and pieces, sprigs of something green growing. It's very heavy air, very, very damp, very high humidity. And in a distance, I see what looks like um, it's a two or three-story mansion built out of stone. Huge. But again, this bottom cavern is quite huge also. Um, I look up, and I can see a light from above, but I can't really see anything specific. It's, it's bright above. Along the side, this area also has the same scaffolding I saw higher up. And it runs around the side. And there are stairs that come down flat onto the ground. So you can walk down the stair onto the ground. We get off the elevator. We walk towards this building. And I'm amazed because I think to myself, this building looks like a human building, you know, up on the on level ground. Um, you know, it's nothing alien about it. It's an absolute human-looking building. And we go into the building, and the first thing I notice is it looks like a very posh hotel, to tell you the truth, okay? So you've got carpeting. You've got a big um, uh, entrance area with some rooms breaking off to the left. There's a big stairway in front of me that moves upward, um, and, and it almost looks like you're in a hotel. So I'm taken to a room. This guy walks me to a room. Nobody's speaking, walks me to a room, and I go into a very small room that looks very similar like a doctor's office. Now, again, let's talk about memory. Step for one second and say that I have, I have some degree of conscious memory of everything that I've talked about in the book. And again, some of those later on, Barbara Lamb, and I did one with Yvonne Smith, we later on did some hypnotic regressions on some of these events, but all of them that was conscious recollection to begin with. And um, in this case, there was also. But anyway, back to the doctor's office. He has me sit down and he leaves. A man comes out. Now I'm getting fuzzy. My clarity is going. And I can't see so clearly. And I'm sitting on the edge of this table. And it, it looks, a man walks out dressed in a plain white lab coat. And um, he doesn't say anything to me. And I'm actually sitting on the edge with my knees bent on the edge of this table. And he's kind of fading in and out. And I wonder to myself, have I been injected with something? What's going on here? Is, is Am I still dealing with a human? Or is this an NET? I'm not sure what's going on. It's foggy. One minute he looks human, then he's fading away, which is something that happens with some of these strange ET encounters, um, probably because they're messing with your cerebral process. 
and trying to sort of create some static, I think, so you can't fully perceive what's happening. But in this case, he started fading out. Then he left the room. It was as though he was going to get something. And I felt very panicky during this experience because it was so different. And I got up off the table. I go out that door, through the entrance, and outside. Once outside, uh, I'm very confused. I don't know what to do or where to go. I run to the back. I, I run along the wall. And I see a window that would have approximated the area of the room I've been in. I peek in. I don't see that quote-unquote doctor in there. I see this empty room. And I continue to make my way along the back wall until I'm at the end of this building. I peek around, and I see a very strange event taking place. The back has a, the back of this house mansion building has a very large, um, first of all, the, the back of it, a big piece of it, is like sliding glass doors, and they're all slid open. And coming out of it is what would, is a projection that would be sort of uh, like a deck, but it's, it's concrete, and it's up off the ground probably three feet. It extends out uh, 10 or 15 feet and half the length of the building. And I see people and beings standing, socializing. It looks like a social event. And you see some indoors. And you see some outside. And they're walking around. And it looks very much like a social event. But what I'm looking at is I'm looking at ETs and human military mingling in some kind of social event, uh, some kind of gathering. Now, um, as far as identifying, now I see a mixture of military uniforms, not just the blue ones of the, of the apparently cloned uh, people, but this is different uniforms. It's more like a um, um, officer uniforms. And some of the beings that are walking around are wearing different kinds of clothes, long capes, different kinds of uh, not familiar uniforms or outfits that they're wearing. But they tend to be kind of flowing, kind of longer, very tall. I notice that some of them are very, very tall. You know, seven, eight, nine feet is a, just a guesstimate. Well, I wasn't looking at that for very long. Probably, I don't know if I made a, uh, a minute and a half or two minutes as I looked at that, and I hear someone coming behind me, and I realize they're looking for me, and I run away from the area. Now, the other thing that was very curious about this is that some of the details were, were very reminiscent of what we do when we work in a construction area. So what I saw off to one side was um, we, when we see a construction area, a lot of times they block them off with this portable fencing. Sometimes it's red or yellow or orange. In this case, there was a big section off to the left side of this building that was sectioned off with this temporary construction fencing. And I ran in, there was a little opening, and I ran into that area, and I kind of squatted down. And as I looked at that area, it was a big round area. It was very, very wet. There were big pools of water and puddles, which would make sense why they would section that area off so nobody walked into that area. Very quickly, they found me. And then I have a few minutes where I can't recall anything. The next thing I know, I'm sitting in a room, and I believe I'm back in that building. And I'm in a room, sitting in a chair, and I can't seem to move. I look across from me, and I see two big leather chairs. And they have big round arms. There's some kind of a table in between. And I hear people. In this experience, there's people talking, oral communication, speaking. And I hear people behind me. I can't seem to turn my head, but I hear these people talking behind me. And they're talking about me. What are they going to do with me? Nadine? Mm-hmm? I apologize. We're going to have to take our second break. This is breaking my heart to interrupt this wonderful story, but we can pick up on it as soon as we come back. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and unfortunately, when we took our break, Nadine was in the middle of a very powerful 
story, and I was riveted, and I want to jump right back into it. Just as we took the break, you were hearing these voices, these human voices, and they were talking about you. Yes. So as I sat there, um, unable to move, but I'm sitting in a regular chair in a room that looked like a regular room. The two big black leather chairs were sitting across from me. Nobody was sitting in there at the time. I sensed a number of people behind me, four or five, but I couldn't turn my head to look. They were talking about me, and they were saying, what are we going to do with her? What are we going to do now? Should we move ahead? Those are the kinds of comments I was hearing behind me. And a strange thing had happened that was really odd that night. And before this experience had happened, I was very, very frustrated uh, by these occurrences. I wanted them to stop. And now I was having the military occurrences. I was just, I was angry, actually, very angry about this. And um, what's really odd is, is on that particular night, I had gone out. And I remember I had, before this, the, the contact had begun, I'd gone outside, it was nighttime, and I was just angry. I was looking up at the sky and say, fine, take me, come and get me. I'm going to stay awake this time. It was a very strange <laughs> communication I was giving to the universe before this thing happened, um, which, of course, makes me wonder um, if indeed military is involved and the ET phenomenon, in some way, they are monitoring so that they also are able to communicate with me or be aware of what I'm doing, even though I'm not. Um, it was just odd that that night I had done that and this had happened. Anyway, back into that room, I start speaking. Don't send me away. I want to stay. I want to know what you're doing. I want to be alert. I'm okay. I won't react. I'll be okay. When I looked around in the room, apparently they were making some decision about me, what to do with me. I looked around the room and I saw, if you go back about 20, 25 years, uh, as televisions began to change, we had these giant big box televisions that sat on the floor. And they were, at the time, they were really, uh, you know, real novel items when they came out. But they stood uh, three or four feet across, and they stood maybe four feet high, big box televisions. It was a big view. And it looked like there were several of those on each side of me. I saw two or three of those on the floor. And then besides, because I could see to the side a bit, and then, of course, the two chairs in front of me. Now, I lose a little consciousness there. Next thing I look, and I see two men sit down and in front of me. And they are the men that have the blue uniforms that originally walked me down, two of the identical ones. They sit in these chairs, and I knew they were going to take me back or stop this experience and weren't going to share any more with me. The two men sit down across from me, and what I believe was happening here is there was some kind of audio device that they were um, employing in order to render me unconscious or to erase my memory. The two men sat in front, and they both took out these very large headphones. Um, I mean large. They completely covered their ears and the sides of their heads, maybe five inches across, tight under the sides of their heads. They sat across from me. They put the headphones on. Now, I don't recall hearing any kind of sound or, or feeling in any kind of unusual thing in the atmosphere audio wave but as soon as they did that i believe something was emanating from those big black boxes and they were protecting themselves i never did see those that were conversing behind me but as soon as they put those headphones on something had happened through those boxes and i was rendered unconscious and my next memory is being put back into bed this is a very disturbing story on so many levels. Now, I just have to I have to ask, okay, you you told a story that was filled with almost theatrical details, right? Right. The identical men, the the mansion in the cave, and the the a little like sort of cocktail party of different beings as well as military people. I mean, this is so so what I'm trying to do is you know, if I take your story literally, 
something really messed up is going on behind the scenes that we are unaware of. And if I, and I'm what I'm asking is, could this whole thing have been some sort of screen event to to create some some desired effect in you? No, no, I don't believe that. Now, anybody who's had repetitive experiences with the ET phenomenon becomes familiar with screen images, and those types of experiences happen when there are extraterrestrials present and that it may be an ET abduction taking place. And whatever it is that they do, certainly a portion of it is um, connecting with our mind and our memory. Some of it is external technologies they employ. But yes, in those events, the ETs certainly do try to create screen images to calm you down, to help you forget. But when you have repeated experiences over years, you'll begin to recognize the difference. You begin to pay attention, as certainly I have, and you begin to see. There was an experience, for example, and it was, it was related to a potential future event when they are screening humans going through these long lines and screening us allegedly when they are present here in the open. And at one point, they show me my brother during this event. Well, my brother is long gone off this planet, and I knew instantly that this was a screen event. So if you really pay attention and really work hard over time, you begin to recognize screen events being stored in your mind as opposed to what may be a real event taking place. You begin to see it. Now, with the military experiences, there's no screen events. It doesn't happen like that. I even have recollections with military where I'm being injected with a regular needle, where you see regular blood pressure equipment, a regular scenario like a hazmat unit. Um, nothing seems unfamiliar. It seems very familiar to our life as humans, humanity. So do I think this is a screen memory? No. These kinds of memories, um, they're very detailed for me. And of course, I have moments where I can't recall anything, of course, but they, can't, they I go in and out. And so I've wondered myself why I am able to um, retain the degree of detail. And I think it's on a number of, for a number of reasons. First of all, I'm a writer and an artist, and I look at detail. I'm very, very visually oriented as an artist. Um, but over the years, um, probably going back to the 70s, I have been very, very uh, interested in consciousness and consciousness expansion. And as a result, I have done reading and done a lot of different types of um, exercises and employed different kinds of techniques to try to expand my memory and my awareness. Some of those, they, they came, you know, we had in the 70s, it's sensory deprivation tanks. So I used to go to the University of um, Ann Arbor in Michigan, and I used to spend time in sensory deprivation tanks. And unless you've done that, um, it's, it's just an amazing experience because what you're doing is you're eliminating all exterior stimuli, and you're able to just become focused. So those kinds of exercises in sensory deprivation tanks, and for many, many years, I have employed sound and light machines. I use it for memory, for um, accelerated learning. There's a number of things. Uh, for many years, I was doing neuro-linguistic programming. Um, I've done self-hypnosis and um, meditation for many years. And I think what that may be the reason why the degree of details that some of the possible explanations why the details are um, the way they are in my memories, you know. But again, of course, that's only sometimes, not all the times. Um, back to screen memory. Do I think this is screen memory? No, I don't. Okay, okay. Th I mean, thank you for being so straight with that, because that was as I was listening to this, I was like, "Wow, this sounds this sounds like dream logic in a way," mm -hmm. you know, descending into the cave and this the. Um, if someone was going to make a story up, they would not make up 
the mansion in the tomb. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I so on one level, like I, like I know you're not making it up, but I also have to be um, like I have to wrestle with the absurdity of how that sounds. Of course. And then at the same time, I've talked to a lot of people who tell of having exactly the experiences. But but the question is, is it really that absurd? Okay, now nothing in that environment is outside of the realm of human possibility. None of it. We know we have underground caves. We have underground bases. Absolutely. None of that's so odd. The idea that there's crafts being made in secret, well, Area 51 and God knows where else. You know, so none of it really presented as an impossible scenario to me. You know, it was logical. You know, I even, you know, when these things happen, I go afterwards online to do some research and say, is there really, do they make round elevators like that? Well, and I even went so far as to look for the emblem on the, that I was seeing on the, um, the emblem, the patch that was on the shoulders, and I found it. Now, I'm not talking about that in the book because it points specifically to various departments within the government, and I didn't want to go there. So I'm treading lightly. And I get that. I'm treading lightly. Yeah, and I get that. Now, what did you leave out of the book and why? Well, there have been experiences that were very choppy, where you're in and you're out and you're in, and it's too fragmented for me to feel I can get a, uh, get a hold of it. If I can't define it well enough, articulate it so another person could comprehend it, I'm not going to share it. Okay, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. And there's also several others that, well, let's, let me back up for a second. For a person who's not exposed to this, all of this seems impossible, right? Absolutely. As you begin to be exposed, it takes time. It takes time as you move forward to this massive amount of information you know, at this point, thousands of people are having these anomalous experiences. And you can't process a lot. You can't go from A to Z. You've got to go through the whole alphabet, one little door at a time. Well, even as an experiencer, I have to do that. Because I will have an experience, I'll go, oh, no way. Come on. Please. What could this be? I, I question myself. I'm I'm disturbed by it. I cannot find my foothold with it. Okay, so I'm always in process with this, trying to absorb the information myself, trying to say, okay, what could this be? Could it be this or this or this? So only those things that I've really thought through that I put in the book. Now there have been some instances that involve, and again, let's say, appeared to involve. None of this is conclusive. You know, you, you can only do the best you can with this kind of information presented to the best of your ability. The best that I can do is create a hypothesis. I cannot tell you anything absolutely 100%. I can tell you how it looked, how it appeared, that I worked with it a long time. Um, this, is, this is the best view of what I have. I can tell you that I'm telling you the 100% truth as I understand it. Um, but... Some other experiences involved reptilians. And they were bits and pieces. They were pretty far out. Okay, all of this is far out. But again, I've only gone this far in accepting some of this. And there's a lot more that I'm trying to still digest. I'm not going to present that until I feel grounded. Because you know, sometimes you hear these things come out of your own mouth and you say, my God, this whole scenario is so difficult to comprehend. And it's happening to me. And, 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 I, and I understand that. And I understand that. So I've heard things come out of my mouth and I'm just, right. I just, so what you just said, I understand that. And then, of course, you know that you're going to have all the tomatoes, the rotten tomatoes thrown at you. No, quite honestly, for me personally, and I don't, I think this is time. I think this is just a. We're at a different point in time. I've had very few rotten tomatoes slung at me. I I fully suspect people are rolling their eyes at times, mm -hmm, right? And suspect people are saying things behind my back. But I personally have had very little backlash coming forward with this, and I have to thank people 
who, who busted down those walls ahead of me. I'll, I'll point to Whitley Strieber in, as one of them. Right, and, right. And so whatever, he he moved that ball a lot further down the line. Right. He got bruised in, oh, in yeah. that process. And I feel like I'm coasting down through this process with very little negative. I, there has been plenty, but much, much less than there would have been 25 years ago. Exactly. But also I think it, another thing for me is that there's fear of that. You know, I'm a a very logical person, very grounded, and uh, maybe it's intellectual ego. I don't know what it is, but I don't like being seen as a nutcase, okay? It's it's just that, and I worked in law for many years, and uh, they're on the straight and narrow, very conservative. So as a really conservative person, (laughs) this is just difficult for me to deal with, period. You know, Um, I did some talks here. I, I... uh, where I've moved here in Albuquerque, I started up some um, talks that have, you know, public uh, talks on the subject, and it has been very well received. I think it was much more difficult even 10 years ago than it is now. I I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Here, I'm going to ask a couple quick questions. Why do you think they are here, this presence, this unknown visitor, alien presence, whatever vocabulary words you want to use. Why are they here? Well, I think that uh, the ET the races that I've been exposed to, I think they uh, may have different agendas. I have not been exposed to people that refer to Nordics or, um, you know, uh, those that they whose intention may be all positive and good. I haven't really ex- experienced that. My thought is what's been presented to me is that there's going to be a catastrophe, and we hear this often, a catastrophe on the planet, maybe an asteroid hitting it, and during that time, this is just one phase of it, during that time there's be another, there may be another race not, not currently associated with the planet that may take advantage of that time. Um, then again, of course, we have the, and that, that some of these ETs that I'm more familiar with may be taking some people off planet during a catastrophe and returning them later. Um, that's one scenario there. Um, then, of course, we run into the what looks like a hybridization program. And that gets into very murky waters because you know, we're experiencing this phenomenon now with the coronavirus, and we have difficulty on the planet dealing with viruses that manifest here and bacteria. And, of course, extraterrestrials coming to this particular environment would also have problems if they're biological entities, which they probably are. So the idea that they are going to find some way to enable them to be here longer through the hybrid program, not only just creating hybrids, but some of my experiences suggested that they are actually taking, um, using the blood and inject it into themselves that will allow them to acquire immunity so they also, not just the hybrids, but they also can be on the planet. So what is the ultimate goal of that? I cannot say. Again, this is all speculation. I agree. I agree. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, I'm going to read a quote from you in the book, and this is a little section that I highlighted as I was reading it. You wrote, Admitting to myself that I might be an alien abductee was probably the most difficult thing I have ever had to face. My sense of reality was shattered, and I faced the monumental task of trying to incorporate the bizarre phenomenon into my daily life. So just so you know, the people who listen to this show, uh, I would say a great number, that that small quote, they're going to resonate with that. Mm-hmm. And and so how how did you incorporate it into your life? Well, um, one of the, as you know, one of the most difficult uh, things initially when you come have to face this in your life is that you can't tell anyone. Okay, you question your own self as these experiences begin to happen and you move through them. Uh, You have to find some kind of outlet, some way to ground yourself, find an outlet to deal with this because 
you're getting out. For example, mine was in the legal career as a paralegal for years. So I'm getting up, I'm dressing in my suit, I'm going into a law firm, which is a very, very conservative, restrictive environment, okay? Very cerebral. There's no room for any kind of behavior like this. So that's where I work, and I'm at 8, 10 hours a day. Then I'm going to come home at night by myself, try to go to sleep at night, wondering what's going to happen. I wake up in the middle of the night, and I sense that there's a three-foot being standing at the bottom of my bed. I'm in terror. My heart's racing. There's buzzing in the air. There's clicking. Something's happening to me. You know, and of course, early on, it's just utterly terrifying because you don't know what it is. Uh, when you begin to become aware of these things, and it was me, I have a lot of conscious recollection. So then it happens. It's four o'clock in the morning, you're back in your bed, you're in a sweat, you're terrified, you've got no one you can talk to, and you've got to pull yourself together to go to work the next morning. So indeed, it's a process. You know, I've got to have my wits about me when I go back into the law firm in the morning. I you know, I, I can't have this linger. So you shut it off and compartmentalize it is what you do. And through recording in my journal, that was my safety zone. That was a place I could pour it all out. And I thought, I'm not going to miss a thing. The only way I can fight back is by writing every single detail and work hard to stay as alert and awake when these phenomena occur. And so that's what I would do. I turned to my books. I kept them on my nightstand. Sometimes I would have an experience that I have so much detail, I'd have to actually record it into a hand recorder because I was afraid I was going to miss some of it. I've done that myself. Mm -hmm. I've done that myself. Mm -hmm. So it, take time. it took time. And I, from my original experience um, in Sedona in 91, uh, I had someone with me when the first uh, conscious experience happened. And she's the only person that I was ever able to share with until I met Barbara Lamb, which uh, was in uh, 2004. So I was silent, except for my journal and this one person occasionally. It took time. So I, I understand this. And I understand the challenges. And I remember asking someone at a UFO conference, it was a husband and wife team, and I asked them, like, I'm in the middle of this. Like, I I'm, I'm, feel like I'm drowning. And, and what, what does it take? How, how do I get past this? And they kind of heard me out, and they nodded, and they said three years. Mm. It was a little more like six years. It was a little more like six years, but, but it, was, it was time. And it was time and hard work. I, I think that's... That's yes, and I think that's a realistic estimate of the processing required to be able to actually stand up, confront it, start to talk about it. Yes, between three and six years. Yeah, yeah I do too. Yeah. yeah, but that's that. That's probably true of any trauma. Oh yes. Well, I spent thirteen years in silence, and then I finally I had a very dramatic event after my father died, and um, you tend to have more context during very emotional times. And um, that's when I sought uh, MUFON. I went to a MUFON meeting and uh, met Barbara Lamb. And so I would say from that point forward, it was probably, you know, it, it still took another couple of years. And we worked on the book and I began to really uh, face it in my life and talk about it. And I was always stunned when I began to hear what other people were going through. You know, I wasn't alone. And that was a huge factor. I could talk for hours on this with you. You have a very responsible way of presenting yourself, and I and I really give you a lot of credit for that. Mm. And I'll say it: you are a very credible person telling a very incredible story, and that means a lot to me. Unfortunately, we're going to have to bring this to a close. I have one more question I want to ask, and then we can get to how people can contact you. So, as I know you through Facebook, partially. And and I will say your Facebook page has a lot of pictures of like dogs and cats and how to adopt a dog and you're there it's very straightforward. Just skimming your Facebook page that you have a tremendous amount of compassion for animals. And then at the same time you're also doing this sounds like for you personally it's a it's like a it's just for yourself, but you've you've taken on an interest in herbs mm. and and natural healing skills. Mm -hmm. Are are you doing that at all to help other people? 
Oh, I have through the years. Probably going back uh, 35, 40 years, I became interested in nutrition and uh, herbal remedies and alternative remedies. Uh, and let me just interrupt. This is this is very much on the flip side of that corporate job where you go to the law office. Yes. You know, I have the two sides of me, you know, a left and right brain. And, and uh, uh, I like to have that solid. I'm very financially grounded also and very you know, practical-minded. Um, but my interests are varied, and um, I had some health issues when I was younger, so I really um, pursued the study. Um, I'm a vegetarian, sometimes vegan, still struggling with that. But my spiritual path has been very, very active for over 40 years. And it's taken a lot of turns and twists, but it's the most important part of my life. And what that is about really is in recognizing spirit within all living beings, even inanimate objects, actually. So with animals and living beings, whether I'm talking about a dog, um, a, an insect, or I'm talking about an ET, I have an ability over the years in, in to personally recognize and see their spiritual essence. And there's a connection there that I feel among all living beings. And um, so my compassion is, um, I kind of stand in their shoes or stand in their paws, whatever it is, and I can kind of feel what they feel, almost to the stage of being uh, an empath. Empathy, empathy, yeah, exactly. That's Empathy is, is, yes. is very common within the people who have had these experiences. Yes. So I... Uh, the natural healing, and I use I use uh, medical lights, and I I do some work with homeless people. And recently, I brought a, a homeless gentleman and put him in my RV last year, and was able to through some of the uh, natural healing. And I use uh, medical lights also. I was able to heal a hole that went through his foot. He was a diabetic man on the street, and uh, we were able to the lights treating him every day at my home to for his foot to completely heal. And he went off on his way. Um, so I've used it in a lot of uh, my knowledge and interest and involvement in natural healing with all of the people around me uh, throughout the years and uh, in a lot of different circumstances. It's a, it's a big part of my life. It really is. And, and I wanted to include that because that was only touched upon briefly in the book. Mm -hmm. But that is something that I'm finding in the people that have these, mm -hmm. these, uh, these experiences. Right. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, through my website, it's, it's under some reconstruction right now, but it's Alien Experiences, A-L-I-E-N-E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E-S.com, or they can use that as uh, my email, alienexperiences at yahoo.com. I'm also on Facebook, of course. Very good. Yes, and that's, and we've chatted on mm -hmm. and off over the years, mm -hmm. uh, and I've followed your book production um through your Facebook page there, just chatting with you and saying hi, because because of our interview that we did um, eight years ago. I wish we could talk longer. I, I'm going to put it out to you now. Let's. I want to have you back on at some point. Sounds good. This has been great, Mike. Yes, this has been great. <laughs> All right. Well, I thank you so much. And I thank you. Hopefully, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Nadine said something near the end of this interview, and, and I want to clarify it a little bit here. Now, she said as much in her book, and I think it's important to make sure that people hear this, that I clarify this. Nadine has explored her experiences using hypnosis, and there are a few points in the book where she shares transcripts of these sessions. Now, for the book, she only shared information gleaned using hypnosis when she already had a set of conscious memories of those events. And I think this is an important thing to make a note of, that she already had what she felt was a pretty clear set of conscious memories, and she used hypnosis to flesh those out, to dig a little deeper. Now, I wanted to say that because hypnosis is a very contentious subject within the UFO research community. 
Some see it as vital, while others see it as the height of folly. For myself, I am somewhere in the middle. And after reading her book and talking with her, I can say that she is very cautious about how to use and trust this information that came from what I, I guess we can only call her subconscious. And I really respect her for clarifying that in the book and then also talking about it here in the interview. As I said in the opening, I did an audio interview back in 2012 with Nadine on my previous podcast, Hidden Experience, and there is very little overlap with what we talked about here in February of 2020. I recommend that older interview highly, and you can find a link in the show notes. Now I want to read something that Nadine wrote. I found this on her Amazon page, and it's a block of text she wrote to describe her book, Evolution. I'm going to read a short excerpt. Once I accepted the fact that we are not alone in the universe, a dramatic shift occurred in my consciousness and spirituality, and I developed a profound sense of purpose. My compassion and commitment to the earth and all living beings became fiercely ignited, along with a desire to see an end to the political and military chains that stop humanity's progress. With this book, I have fearlessly shared my experiences. In doing so, I am stepping to the front lines of disclosure, committed to doing all that I can to support the evolution of human consciousness, which will allow us to become cosmic citizens. That, I believe, is our destiny. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.